0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name's JB with Not By Works Ministries, and today is Thursday, May the 18th, coming to you from my studio beneath the sky, nestled here in the tall timbers of Colorado. Kind of a sunny day, but expecting a little more rain, uh, but uh, some of that yucky weather that we've had for the last week hopefully is moving out of the area and we can start enjoying uh, what should be a a beautiful Colorado May. But uh, delighted to have a a dear friend and colleague uh, joining me for the program today to talk about some pretty interesting stuff. I'll introduce him in just a moment but to want to mention a couple of quick announcements if you haven't had the chance yet to listen to my interview with mondo gonzalez from prophecy watchers uh earlier this week it's called ufos aliens and the nephilim fantastic discussion as we just uh searched the scriptures and did some speculation on trying to make sense of a lot of the anecdotal evidence that we see all around us so i hope you'll check that one out that again was from uh, monday and then uh also on uh, yesterday, Wednesday, we had our weekly world events update with Randy, another fantastic power-packed hour uh, with him, and some late-breaking news uh, that he covered there and we talked about on that show. So check that uh, podcast out from yesterday. Uh, I want to remind you, it's not too late to sign up for the Mid-America Prophecy Conference. That's coming up next weekend, not this coming weekend, but a week from tomorrow, and that's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Myself, uh, Andy Woods. um, Let's see, Tommy Ice and a few others that you would know most likely uh, are going to be there and uh, just an awesome conference, 14th annual conference, and uh, I'll be speaking twice. So check that out. You can find the link there at our website, notbyworks.org, and I'd love to have you join us there in Tulsa. Also, we've been mentioning here recently in some of my uh, messages about our Bible Study Methods course that is now posted at the Not By Works website. If you scroll through the highlight carousel, those promotional banners that cycle through on the main homepage, you'll see a link there to the Bible Study Methods course. If you're interested in learning how to read and understand and handle the Word of God correctly, I highly recommend you take a look at that uh, course. Uh, we did not have Prophecy Night this week, but we'll kick that back up again next Tuesday, planning to address some more of the upsurge in paranormal activity, things that are going on all around us. Uh, as I've said many times, when things are heating up on the earth, it always means things are heating up in the heavenlies as we get closer and closer uh, to the climactic battle the Battle of Armageddon, just prior to the establishment of the kingdom. Uh, so we'll be looking forward to another edition of Prophecy Night next Tuesday. If you're in the Denver metro area, come out and join us at Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia, 6 o'clock to 7.30 with a Q&A to follow. Uh, we also live stream that, so wherever you may be listening uh, across the land, if you would like to tune in, you can check that out at notbyworks.org. Just click the live stream button on Tuesday nights, and it'll take you right there. Uh, so, we are so excited to have uh, a dear friend, uh, Brad Maston. He's the pastor at Fort Collins Bible Church and president of Fort Collins Bible College. Also serves on the board of Chafer Seminary, where I've had the privilege of uh, working with them for many years. That's uh, the school where Dr. Andy Woods is the president. Great school, by the way. Um, but I first met Brad many years ago. It's probably been uh, 15 or 20 years ago now when we were both speaking at a conference in Duluth, Minnesota, and uh, we just spent some time uh, kind of off stage uh, just talking, visiting, and it was one of those deals where, and this is not uncommon if you know much about Duluth Bible Church, we ended up staying up till like one or two in the morning talking about all sorts of theological quagmires, and I fell in love with Brad right away. Uh, Since then, I've had the privilege of speaking at his church a number of times. He hosts uh, conferences out there in Fort Collins, Uh, just the sweetest family in the world, wonderful wife and kids, and uh, just consider him a dear friend, and also one of the smartest guys, and I'm not just uh, patronizing here. He really is a brilliant mind. He's written uh, 20 books in that neighborhood or so. You can check those out on Amazon.com. Again, Brad Maston, M-A-S-T-O-N is his name, but his latest book, is what I really want to talk about here, and uh, I was privileged to read an advanced copy of it, and it just was right up my alley. I think it will be yours as well. The title is Angels and the Pseudepigrapha. Is Pseudepigraphic Angelology angelology, Biblically Orthodox? So, uh, kind of a heady book, but yet, uh, Brad does a fantastic job of really diving into the scriptures and kind of laying it out there in a manner that uh, anybody can really understand. And, and uh, so the question at hand and what we're going to be talking about among a, a variety of other sort of angelology, demonology type subjects on the podcast today uh, is, you know, we realize that the pseudepigrapha Is not inspired, it's not inerrant, it's not part of God's inspired word. Yet, New Testament authors quote from it, and yet it has uh, quite a bit of historical, interesting information. And uh, what role, if any, should it play in helping us shape our understanding of angelology? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Brad, I am so honored to have you. You know, you've got so many books that I was looking behind me on my shelf. And, you know, you know how when you organize your books, you've got certain they're alphabetical, most people alphabetical by the author's last name. You've got certain sections where when you go to that letter, something just sort of jumps off the shelf. Like for me, when I go to the W's, it's a bunch of Wolverd books, you know, <laughs> right. or the R's, it's a bunch of Ryrie books. Well, when I go to the M's, it's a bunch of Mastin books, Brad <laughs> Mastin. So I am so delighted to get to talk to you. I know our listeners will enjoy uh, hearing from you as well. Welcome to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. It's an
1: honor to be here, JB. Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: My pleasure. So uh, I have a whole list of questions uh, that I'd like to get to, uh, but we'll just let the conversation kind of go uh, where it goes. But uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about this book and maybe what your working thesis was and what led you uh, to write about the pseudepigrapha.
1: Well, uh, so I... It was This was a part of my pursuit of uh, my PhD, and my PhD project was in Jewish studies at uh, Schofield Theological Seminary. Um, and upon finishing it, it just became obvious that it was interesting enough to enough people that it was worth putting that out there as a publication. But my primary interest was in how uh, the pseudepigraphic literature, that is to say, uh, all this extra biblical Jewish literature, that shaped the ancient world, particularly the Jewish world, and and explained some of their understanding of things. Again, like you said, it's by no means uh, inspired. It's not nece- uh, not necessarily even reliable or accurate, just like many of the books today, right, that are written in the name of Christianity or Christendom are not reliable. And we'd say, well, I'll stay away from those authors and such. Uh, but uh, we we have to recognize that the Jewish world was far more literate than we give them credit for. You know, we so frequently think of of the Bible as being Israel's book, and it certainly was, but they were so literate and so you know so much uh, thinkers and writers that there was a great deal of you know Talmudic writing as other other writings that were interpretational in nature, as well as again other books that they didn't uh, regard as scripture, but they did revere them as being worthwhile uh, revelation or inf- interesting information to them. So my interest in that was was peaked going through this, and particularly uh, I. We'll be honest, I had almost a disdain for angelology as many, I think many people do. It sounded a little too fanciful. It sounded a little too exciting or a little too uh, comic book, whatever it was. And um, so wanting to actually examine the biblical evidence as well as some of the extra biblical evidence on that matter uh, was Was a big motivation for me, and to find out how uh, wonderful and rich the the tapestry of revelation surrounding the angelic world or the celestial beings that God created uh, became very meaningful to me. And it was also uh, an important kind of side. Purpose to prove that the biblical angelology was not, as many secularists will uh, make, you know, allege, was not taken from Babylonian or from some sort of pagan mythology and incorporated into biblical theology, but rather was original and unique to the Jewish world mind view, mindset, and worldview from the very beginning. And that angelology was a part of their initial re- revelation, of course, because it's the revealed truth. Um, but I wanted to help. Uh, resist or 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 uh, argue against some of those errant arguments or com- claims that um, that that somehow Israel or the Jews took their angelology from Babylon or took their angelology from Egypt or and so on and so forth. So those are yeah, some and, of the main purposes. Yeah, and in fact, it's just the opposite
0: as we find out. You know, the these ancient Near Eastern pagan religions took their uh, oral history from God's people, such as the you know the flood epics, the creation epics, and and their angelology as well. So uh, so yeah, that's fascinating. So just for our listeners who may not be aware. aware pseudepigraphic, of course, is a compound word. Both words come from Greek pseudo, meaning what, false, I think, if I'm right, yeah. and graphe, meaning writings. So, it's a term, pseudepigraphic, that has come to mean false writings, at least in terms of the standard of these are not inspired and fallible, you know, divine books that God wrote. We have those incorporated into our Bibles today, the 66 books of the Bible. And I always like to point out, and I was having this dialogue with someone this week, in fact, by email. Um, th- that, you know, the mankind did not determine which books are inspired. God determined it. And mankind simply discovered them. it's It's like panning for gold. You don't get to hold up a piece of fool's gold and declare, hey, this is gold. I just declared it. No, no, it either is or it isn't. And God's word either is or it isn't. And God, you know, revealed himself over a period of 1500 years through 40 different human authors and three different languages, uh, through the written word of God. And, and this is what we hold in our hands. And yet, as you said, uh, the, there is a, you know, treasure trove really of Extra biblical writings, uh, Josephus comes to mind from the first century, uh, first century AD, uh, you know, as well as Jewish writings, other Jewish writings and so forth that really can give us some valuable insight and background. Um, and you know, the Bible is our only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. So what you did in this latest book was sort of take a look at some of the claims of the, uh, books of Enoch. Which? How many books of Enoch are there? Four, five, or am I remembering? Uh,
1: I am. I have interacted with three. Three. Okay, so three
0: books of Enoch. So, and that may be all there is. You would. You're the expert there. So I just. I knew there was multiple ones. Uh, So you know, are the claims made in there uh, consistent with what we know to be true from God's word? Essentially, that's kind of one of the angles that you're you're coming at it from here. So, uh, talk to us for a bit about. Enoch and the books of Enoch and give us kind of a broad brush of what those books are about and why they're so fascinating to students of uh, angelology.
1: Well, and it really does all relate to this idea of pseudepigraphic literature. As you pointed out, uh, this idea of the, the pseudo or the false epigraph um, has uh, in large part, the idea that we believe from a modern perspective that these books are falsely attributed. And this isn't unknown in, in uh, the ancient world. In fact, many of the Gnostic gospels, we would say, are pseudoepigraphic. It's claimed to be the gospel of Peter or the gospel of Mary or so on and so forth, or the gospel of Thomas. And yet we've got no reason to trust that those authors were ever actually attached to those works right in fact we're quite confident that they weren't yeah and- so
0: so let me interject yeah you 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 corrected something i misstated mis- a moment ago it's not graphe writings that the, the s- second part of the commoner is epigraphic, meaning someone who claims to put their to to be the author, right? So it's false authors, false authorship. Is that the idea behind these books?
1: Right, and so uh, in those in those uh, New Testament examples, right, these Gnostic gospels, we can say with great authority that they are not; they are in fact false epigraphs. They're not f- correctly attributed to the author that they claim to have. Um, With the book of Enoch and really with all of these ancient works that we fit in the pseudepigraphic category, we can't be quite so confident. So the books of Enoch and particularly first Enoch is, I believe, well, the one that I've interacted with the most and I think the most important of the three uh, has been regarded by uh, as scripture by certain small sects of christianity throughout church history um and and is not extant to us in its original hebrew or whatever it was originally written in so we have our fir- biggest complete version in ethiopic we have greek versions we have uh interesting textual evidence of this but the fascinating thing about it is that we can't say with any certainty or with any authority that uh enoch wrote nothing we don't know what he wrote. We don't know what was preserved throughout, you know, through the ark, through the the Jewish people. We have, I think, a very strong sense that uh, Moses, as he uh, lived in, you know, as a as a prince of Egypt, we're speaking somewhat euphemistically, amongst the royal family, would have had access to um, potential documents that might have been stored there when Joseph initially led the children of Israel to Egypt, uh, and so, so we have these this very believable possibility that a literate people that was interested in their history could have preserved uh, some, if not uh, significant writings of someone like an Enoch. We just don't know, right? And we don't have enough documentary evidence to make incredibly solid conclusions. Now, I wouldn't propose that the entire book of 1st or even 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Enoch were written by Enoch, but it doesn't seem in any way unlikely to me that certain Realities that Enoch did did know, had seen, were preserved within that. Um, It it becomes sort of a an unanswerable question, but it just when we as examine our assumptions, the alternate assumption is that those that these works were written entirely and totally uninformed by anyone else in the you know usually in the. Post captivity period, or maybe in the captivity. Uh, and those are also based upon assumptions. So, yeah, it,
0: yeah the, 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 those people claim that they just pulled it out of thin air. It's complete fabrication and so forth. And I think you're making a great point that we just don't know. Uh, and it's certainly not beyond the realm of possibility that it does reflect accurately Enoch's perspective.
1: Yeah. And, and and the things that he reveals, I would argue, are largely, though not entirely, concordant with Scripture. Uh, that is to say that it goes far beyond what Scripture chooses to reveal to us, particularly in, let's say, the first six chapters of Genesis, but even going forward. Um, And I think it shows uh, some important focus of the biblical text is that the biblical text tells us what we need to know about angels. And there's extra biblical texts that kind of pursue the question of what we want to know. But God has revealed enough for us to make the meaningful conclusions that we're meant to make about the angelic world with which we don't have primary uh solicitation to interaction right we're not meant to be trying to influence the angelic world in any significant way as rather we go to god right we go specifically to the lord through jesus christ or the father through jesus christ so um so this is uh, to me shows that that the angelic Perspective, The perspectives on angels of the ancient Jewish world was far more informed culturally. And there was a great background to the uh, biblical text that explains why they wouldn't have spent a great amount of time talking about or defining ideas about angels and demons because they had a perfectly uh, logical, reasonable perspective on these things that they didn't think was necessary to explain.
0: Yeah, you know, today, especially conservative Christians that, that that are dispensational in their approach to Scripture, they tend to kind of shy away from angelology and get nervous about it. They're kind of scared about it. And those who follow Not Bowers Ministries know that we we address it, you know, head on. You know, we, uh, we, in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1 and 2, especially in Chapter 2, we have... Um, two whole chapters that deal with a lot of the paranormal, uh, you know, activities of evil spirits and so forth. And so, you know, there's no question that this stuff is real. My premise in the books is that it's heating up, that we're seeing an upsurge in this otherworldly type activity as this cosmic struggle is is reaching a climax. Um, But, you know, recently, we've talked a lot about, and in in preparation and research for my forthcoming book, A Spirit of the False Prophet, uh, I've done a lot of research into Genesis 6 and the whole unholy intrusion, as uh, Jude talks about, uh, and Peter in the New Testament. And then we've interviewed some, you know, some scholars like yourself, such as Mondo Gonzalez and others who've uh, written and talked about this extensively. So give us a rundown because we're always picking up new listeners. Um, talk to us about what happened in Genesis six and what information Enoch gives us that might you know shed some light on the background of that.
1: Um absolutely would it uh, would it bother you if we step just a little bit back? Because I think that there's sort of a a, a, a a narrative that we can observe in scripture. And this is definitely more on the theory level. I do present it in my book.
0: Yeah. Uh yeah, and and I don't want to uh, I I kind of am somewhat burying the lead a little bit here because one of the main reasons I want to talk to you about uh I wanted to have you on the show one of the things I want to talk to you about is your understanding of the fall of Lucifer and that to me is explosive and and really exciting and I, and we're gonna we're gonna get to that as well but I'm so right now obsessed with and fascinated with the nephilim and all that <laughs> that I really want to dive into that uh for a while first so absolutely start wherever you feel is best to lay the groundwork and then we can talk about the Nephilim.
1: Sure. Well, so um, again, Realizing that we're going to circle kind of back around to that, uh, uh, then uh, just to point out very simply that there's sort of a standing idea in Christianity that either within or without our timeline, that there was sort of a group fall event uh, that occurred, and 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 Satan kind of led this rebellion somewhere out there, maybe some other dimension, maybe somewhere in space, but there was, or maybe again somewhere millions of years ago in time, but there was this this big event that uh, was a one time fall event and um i think what the bible paints is it uh at least potentially another picture of uh, uh, a a an human timeline uh, description of first the fall of satan and then when we get to genesis chapter 6 we see other angels unfallen, right, who decide to fall, who make the choice to rebel against God on the basis of Satan's successful uh, wrestling wrestling of earth from God's hands. So now Satan has essentially a PR campaign that he can run and offer something to these angels, these uh, these, uh, beings that God gave to administer uh, certain things and certain elements of life on earth. And now he has sort of a look I rebelled against God. I got away with it. All of these experiences, including uh, relationships with human women that would bring forth progeny, are now open to us. Are now available to us. In other words, you shall be as gods. We don't have to do it His way. We can be kind of each of us can be the master of our own destiny under, you know, under Satan's uh, new world, new r- new rule that he's after. So, that being the case, we see in, in Genesis 6, you know, this very obscure picture that the sons of God, uh, a term which absolutely, biblically speaking, uh, refers to angels. Uh, again, this is the B'neiha Elohim. Uh, there are various hopes and attempts to try to make this something different, something different. Um, like uh, the the sons of, or rather the sons of the Kings in the pre-flood period or uh, various other naturalistic, the sons of Seth, the godly line of Seth. However, uh, it's uh, not very reasonable when we when we notice uh, notice the the very special nature of that term. In fact, if the sons of God were humans in any way, for God to interfere with this or call this a bad uh, mating would have been rather absurd because God told them to be fruitful and multiply. So renown them to jump in and punish people for being fruitful and multiplying puts God in a rather difficult position. However, when we note that this sons of God expression and the daughters of men uh, uh, In in this new kind of relationship to one another uh, is definitely a violation of God's order and a uh, mixing, if you like, of the angelic or these celestial beings and humans in order to create some sort of perverse progeny uh, that we refer to, that the Bible refers to as the Nephilim. And so that's that there were these giants in the earth. That's our Nephilim word in verse four of chapter six. And afterwards, the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. They were mighty men of old, uh, men of renown. And so this winds up being something that helps us understand the greatest, uh, the greater picture. And what the book of Enoch does is it fills in a lot of those gaps. So, um, Enoch is in the context of the book, given, of course, we know that Enoch is the one who born later after the these types of events started to happen. So he you would imagine Enoch lived in a world where this was common where uh, fallen angels of one type or another were uh, procreating with women, that there were these uh, giants, these Nephilim, which again, some extra biblical sources put at stories and stories high. Uh, I think it's probably more reasonable to think of them in being between nine and eleven feet high uh, in in height. So they were giants, but not, you know, like absurd, you know, twenty foot tall monsters, giants. Um, I mean, really, you think about just the birth equation; it'd be quite difficult to 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 fit that all inside <laughs> the biology of a human being. But anyway, the, the thought that it was a, a you know just a more a larger than normal sized person. So. Um, Enoch, who again Scripture tells us very little about him, except that he walks with God and was no more. He's our first example of a rapture, of a of a, a deathless end to this existence, where he's uh, simply taken up. And um, the the book of Enoch describes these uh, certainly sometimes fanciful but revelations which God gave him, showing him new things. He preaches to and and gets the the whole skinny, the whole deal on uh, on what was going on with these angelic encounters and what happened and the punishment of those demons and even talks about gives a reason as to why not all of the fallen angels fall into their uh, a place of confinement, but rather uh, the person who we would probably refer to as Satan uh, negotiates sort of a certain number of them being freed to continue to be active on the earth. And again, this is all extra biblical, but what it does, it did for the ancient reader, was provided that information as to why the demonic world was still active in spite of that judgment and how it continued and and uh, you know continued into their time and into their into their lives.
0: So, so, so uh, let's put some historical dates here. If in fact Enoch is the you know, originator of these documents, they would have had to have been written pre-flood, right? right. Mm-hmm. So that would be twenty-four, five, six hundred BC in that general area. Right. Am I am I doing the math right there? That's uh, yeah. So, but of course, they may have been written uh, pseudographically, uh, uh, reflecting his thoughts and oral tradition. After that, but in any event. What's the and I don't want to put you on the spot here because I know people often will ask me details about my books and I'm like you know how how long it's been since I wrote that I I I mean I don't know you tell me you know more about my book than I do but anyway uh, do you happen to know what the uh, oldest extant copy of any of the books of Enix is that we have in in hand
1: Um, if. Memory serves, we may have some testament to it from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we put it, you know, in the first, second century BC, but um, the, the fullest extant copies, again, are in Ethiopic and they come from uh, later than the New Testament period. Okay, um, yeah. So, but… But it does all kind of go around this idea that we gotta, you know, remember that as these uh, documents are being passed down and these ideas are being passed down, it's not at all unreasonable to think that, you know, what we have today would be some sort of amalgamation of the sayings of Enoch and so on. And even the book of first Enoch is organized into uh, several sections that were clearly not even, they're not even claiming to be written together, you know? Yeah. So, so the, the, the thought, right, that you would just like you might have a you know, complete works of George Washington or something. You know, you'd have different collections that ultimately got potentially abused. And because again, these are not holy scriptures. So they're not under the protection that God protected the rest of of the word of God. And yet again, it doesn't mean they're wholly unreliable, it just means they're not reliable. Yeah. So
0: the doctrine of preservation does not apply, you know, in that in that sense. So um Okay, so now, so that gives us a little background on the Nephilim to summarize, you know, these um, unholy celestial beings, uh, fallen angels, as it were, came down, cohabited with the daughters of men, producing a hybrid race that was not uh, fully human, uh, and the Bible calls them Nephilim. And that term uh, is only actually used twice, if I recall, in Scripture, in Genesis 6 and in Numbers 13, but you have a whole category of that type of being, uh, you know, the Rephaim and, and the Anakim and so forth uh, that are uh, that are prevalent in the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 6-4 clearly uh, indicates that they were present after the flood, not just before. So, the notion that some people have that somehow the flood wiped them out um, doesn't doesn't hold water. Uh, I also want to mention that I was listening to somebody recently, a pretty brilliant scholar, actually. It's based on, it's the first time I'd heard them, but they were being interviewed. Um, I don't know what their paradigm is, what their background is. They seem to know the Lord from some of the language that they were using, but I didn't hear their testimony, so I can't even say for sure they're a believer, but certainly very knowledgeable in the Hebrew Scriptures. And they were trying to make the argument that Nephilim doesn't mean giants. And so, I I wanted to check that out. So, I went to the standard lexicon today in academia uh, for Hebrew called the Hebrew and Aramaic Lexicon of the Old Testament, or Halot, and first definition under Nephilim is giants. So, I I think, you know, the biblical anecdotal evidence, or I guess uh, descriptive evidence, uh, when you come to Numbers 13, certainly bears that out. I mean, the spies said we were like grasshoppers in there, you know, compared to them. um, so I'm not sure why some people claim that Nephilim are not giants, but here we are now some four thousand years later. um if you understand Genesis six four the way you and I do that it indicates that they were still present after the flood. um to me, it's possible that you still have the Genetic composition of a nephilim, but it's more corrupted. You have, you know, the gene pool has been sort of depleted even more, and so you could have a nephilim today that may not, may or may not be nine to eleven feet tall. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's really you. You pointed out what I think is one of the most important things that I myself suffered with uh, from. Uh, earlier on in my walk with Christ, <laughs> which is an anti-supernatural bias. You know, anything that seems supernatural or weird, which is kind of funny because we obviously are supernaturalist in character, right? We believe that God exists outside of nature and, and is the creator of it and is in control of it. We believe that there are uh, angels. We believe that there are demons. We believe that there are forces that we cannot see and cannot fully understand or manipulate, but they are beyond our five senses, right? That's, it's, uh, central to the Christian worldview. And yet, as we get into these things that just sound a little bit too fanciful from a modern Western uh, society that has been so infected by naturalism and secularism and materialism that we almost feel ashamed. And in fact, you know, as people have these supernatural encounters, whether that's an alien encounter, a Bigfoot encounter, whatever it is. They often have an entire breakdown. Whereas people in the rest of the world, you know, with a a rational mindset, that is to say, a historically rational mindset, they wouldn't be off put at all. Of course, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not shocking at all. But to us who are so secularized, even Christians who are so secularized that we're terrified of the thought of anything that is beyond our normal scope and experience is one, it's foolishness, it's insanity, uh, and also a chronological arrogance that is totally inappropriate. But you know so so adding to that or going back to that we get to this issue with the nephilim we want to I think something in us even those who see uh, see this uh, Genesis 6 the way we do want to try to put that in a box and put it on the other side of the flood and that's where it is and that's where it stops and that where that's where it ended but you still have to deal with these occurrences that happened right on into the book of Joshua and, and really past right um and it's you know even just One of the things that I found interesting is I remember reading through years ago, why is it that Og King of Bashan keeps coming up? I mean, goodness gracious, it's just one king. What's the big deal? Well, clearly, there was something really remarkable about Og and taking him down was was quite a big deal. And I love that his name was Og. I just... It's tremendous but <laughs> yeah. but with this idea that they were encountering things that were again beyond the normal natural scope is beyond question so you have to say either a there was some sort of nephilim genetics or some sort of genetic from that contained through let's say the wives of Noah's sons which is hard because then you're imagining that that these uh, anomalies are point popping up that are Pretty remarkable. Uh, You know, like you said, the Anakim, the Rephim, the Og king of Bashan, all this other business. Um, And that seems less um, desirable. In fact, I think what's probably more uh, uh, reasonable as an explanation is that at that point, at the point of the flood, God, and actually the book of Enoch attests to this idea, God put a serious new penalty. He's laid down a new rule saying any angel doing this is going to experience great uh, and a terrifying punishment, right? Including com- uh, captivity, being put in the abyss, something rather extreme. And I think that's also what the demons were talking about uh, when they would talk to Jesus, right? They'd say, is, na- is now the time? Are You're here ahead of schedule. Are you going to, please don't send us to abyss, send us to these uh, these pigs or whatever it is. What are they all uh, worrying about? What are they all concerned about? Well, they don't want to share that fate. So, As that harsh fate or as that harsh punishment penalty was put down, we see decreased instances, perhaps, of that. But it doesn't mean that God made it impossible to do. We see a similar, you know, thing happen when, you know, incest or yeah, marrying a close relative is not at all uh, forbidden in the Bible until you get to the Law of Moses, right? Until it becomes God doesn't drop that in until it becomes. Specifically necessary for whatever his reasons were, probably having to do with the continued, you know, decay of and and entropy attached to the human genome. So we see God changing things, you know, as as He goes on and react resp- re- reacting to and responding to the sinfulness of His creation, the rebellion of His creation. Um, so I think I got a little bit off the off the. No, off
0: no, the- that's that's excellent, and I, I really appreciate your. Uh, kind of reiterating the point about this anti-supernatural bias, because, you know, I've seen it, uh, you know, I went to Dallas Seminary for my master's and, you know, kind of came out of there with one perspective. And it's just one of those things that uh, any other part of the world, they're much more comfortable with unexplained phenomena, because they recognize there's a spiritual realm, a realm of the unseen, where the battle is really originating, and um, but we've kind of created a nice, neat little box to live in here in Western evangelicalism. And and I think that's by design. I, I really do. I believe, uh, uh, not to get too far field, but I really believe that, you know, God's fingerprints were on the founding of this country, but so were Satan's, as I've talked about in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. Uh, and by the way, for... New listeners, and I know having you on is going to bring us some new listeners from your, uh, you know, world, so to speak. So folks can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org, spiritoftheantichrist.org to learn more about the, my, my latest two books. But as I, I talk about in, in those books, you know, America, has been a real problem for the luciferians satan's human accomplices that are trying to take over this world and i think satan uh thought of america as a beachhead for the new world order from its early inception and i i i fleshed this all out in the book so you'll have to just take my word for it for the sake of time now but but go back and research it yourself all the all the resources and 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 uh, bibliographic citations are there but over time god's hand of blessing just really kind of held sway and, and America became, you know, a light really to spread the gospel globally. and And eventually it kind of got out of the hands of the early Luciferian elite that were trying to use the new world as a beachhead for the new world order. And so, Satan, I think by design, he is the great deceiver. You know, he's a liar. I think he... closed up people's minds here, Christians, to the whole concept of the spiritual battle to make us ill-prepared for what is now happening the closer we get to the rapture and the tribulation. And I think that's part of the reason I wrote the books is I want people to wake up to the reality that things are not as they appear. I mean, there are evil spirits walking and moving among us of a variety of classes. And, and Brad, Brad, we haven't even talked about that yet. Uh, by the way, for, if you just join us talking to Brad Maston, pastor at Fort Collins Bible Church, Fort Collins, Colorado, and president of Fort Collins Bible College, also on the board of Chafer uh, Seminary, and just an all-around great uh, great guy i got to say and one of my good friends and uh, go to guys for some of these uh deeper theological discussions but i think absolutely people are just completely uh unprepared for what is unfolding and it's only going to get worse but uh back to the nephilim in genesis 6 i want to clarify for me anyway um i don't think it's possible and you may not have been you know alluding to this as a possibility i don't know but i don't think it's possible that any of the nephilim were Noah's family. I think they were totally righteous and not not uh, had any Nephilim genes in them. But, uh, but I do think you have to wrestle with Genesis 6-4, which plainly says that the Nephilim were around after the flood as well. And I know some good scholars try to kind of explain that in different ways. Uh, Arnie Fruchtenbaum, for example, has uh, you know a perspective on that, trying to make that say something different. I just have an honest disagreement with him on there. Um, he's a lot smarter than I am, but I just, I don't take it the way he does. Um, so, how did they appear on the other side of the flood? Well, two options, and I'll love to get your take on this. Either these fallen angels did it again, you know, uh, oops, they did it again, right? They came down a <laughs> second time and uh, and just, you know, continued these unholy intrusions, and they're continuing to this day. I think that that's possible. The Bible does not explicitly preclude that. Now, our mutual friend and colleague, Andy Woods, has said, because I've been on programs with him before where he has said that he th- he thinks that's highly unlikely because why would the angels do the same thing again after seeing what happened to their counterparts the first time they did it? Well, I mean, that's possible a good argument but it's a total speculative argument we we don't know people you know why does anybody still murder after seeing someone get the death penalty i mean it does happen right uh so uh and these fallen angels are self deceived so so i don't i don't know that that really answers the question uh, but i do think it's possible uh, you know that it, these intrusions could happen again but a second alternative as to how these nephilim got or uh, are, are still around after the flood is the very nature of their ontological being. I mean, who, what are they? Well, they're hybrids, meaning they're not fully human. They're not uh, explicitly biological. They have a a hybrid nature that can take on a spirit realm. And so, I think, and a lot of people uh, would, would agree with this uh, viewpoint, that when he says they were also on the earth, Nephilim, after the flood, that the physical bodies of these offspring of the fallen angels and daughters of men uh, died, but the spirits survived. They rose above the floodwaters and they survive, and they continue to be part of Satan's evil army to this day, helping advance his evil agenda to try to take over this world. And then that gets into, could that be what we see happening in the New Testament with some of the demonic activity? So, um, do you think both of those scenarios are possible and that we could still have Nephilim today for those two reasons?
1: Yeah, you know it really is pretty fascinating when you think about the nature of it, and I—I'll I, be honest with you, I still favor the idea that demons are, or in both Old and New Testaments, which very few. References in the Old Testament comparatively, but uh, in the New Testament, I think demons are fallen angels in nature. It's just how I lean. However, I think there's great merit to the idea that those might be, uh, especially those that possess people that, that go about that uh, in that way, that they are, again, spirits of the Nephilim. We just are given so little information about what happened to them that we're necessarily uh, going to be speculating. But it is fa- the fascinating touch point to me is that if in fact the demons are uh, disembodied, would say spirits of Nephilim, they're looking for bodies. Mm-hmm. They're looking for things to possess. They're looking for things to take over. And that makes sense because they were designed to have them. Whereas the idea of angels or demons, rather fallen angels or demons or the be very precise whereas fallen angels right um do not necessarily need a corporeal form or depend upon one they can appear as having one if they choose to but they're under no reliance to do so to interact with the world and yet perhaps there's some limitation on these um on these nephilim types or nephilim spirits wherein in order to you know rest they have to have a, a body to possess um of course yeah, we've got, we could draw in a lots of other information, like the possession of the serpent, and in Genesis chapter three, and and on and on. But um, but but I, I think that it brings up some interesting points that I'm probably not ready to commit to yet uh, in terms of, of of identifying those creatures. It seems to me uh, that 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 all falls together. Certainly, we you know their destiny is in the lake of fire that was prepared and for the devil and his angels, right? It was. Yeah. Uh, Jesus it, told
0: us that in Matthew 25. So, but so, yeah, no, I agree with you and and I am I lean the same way you do. And the view that I espouse in the books, Spirit of the Antichrist books was that demons is just a synonym for a fallen angel. But, you know, the more I look into it, as you said, you know, there's some interesting arguments to be made. The Bible doesn't have a whole lot of thus saith the Lord passages on these types of questions. So we're doing our best to theologically synthesize the biblical data and come up with a paradigm. Um, But either way, that's why I've recently sort of taken to the phrase evil spirits in general. However you might categorize them, these are evil spirits that have specific roles to play. But Mm -hmm. uh, I want to go back and and nail down real quick. So, But you, in your understanding, is it conceivable, first of all, that fallen angels could continue these unholy intrusions today, conceivably?
1: Yeah, so… Um, again, just as as you so well mentioned, we're not dealing with data. We're dealing with assumptions based on the data that we have. Um, and to me, it seems as if when God makes a decree, like okay, this is the new punishment for you know an angel for a fallen angel living or an angel leaving its its God designed estate to uh, copulate with a female, <laughs> right? Um, is is something that is now very seriously punished um just like if you seriously start seriously punishing horse thieves right you might get fewer horse thieves but you'll probably still see a horse go missing now and again right <laughs> someone thinks that they can get away with it and it's it's interesting again as we consider the spiritual landscape, obviously we know that God exists outside of time. The Father, he's, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's all-knowing. And yet, what do we have throughout the picture of of the Old Testament prophecy? We see that both angels and demons are, are, are operating in the space in time. In fact, there's recon missions. And we say, why does God need recon missions if he, you know, in Zechariah and the like, right? These, these angels and chariots that are going everywhere and collecting information. Why do they need recon missions? Well, uh, certainly God is all knowing. We're not questioning that, but for whatever reason, for the purposes of the drama of what's going on on this planet, he doesn't seem to rely upon that exclusively, but seems to rely upon the transfer of information through Angelic beings, or, or so on and so forth, um, and if that's being the case, right, then we can assume that some demon might think they can get away with it. So, what do we see? Well, we see exactly what we'd expect to see if all of a sudden a harsh punishment came in with a crime. You'd see far fewer instances of that behavior, but you'd still potentially see it. And you know, who knows? Maybe then that <laughs> that fallen angel finds out they're in trouble and goes on the lamb, but uh, and believes that since this is then satan is the god of this world that he can get away with it maybe he does maybe he doesn't because of the ultimate judgment of all of those creatures isn't now right i mean yeah and see that until the end of the millennium
0: yeah and so and then i would add to that uh and again totally just trying to interpret the data not not say thus saith the lord but i think the closer we get to the return of the lord and the end of the age we're going to see an upsurge in phenomenalistic type activity. And in and notwithstanding everything we just said about the the less likelihood that fallen angels would do this, even though some still will, I think we're going to see an upsurge in that. I think Satan is desperate. He's trying to add members to his army. As I pointed out before, Satan can only lose members to his army because angels themselves do not procreate. So that we have the same number of angels today as we had when God created them. Mm. Um, Satan was already at a two-to-one disadvantage, um, you know, and then some of his team got put permanently in prison because of their nastiness that they did when they left their proper domain, as Jude describes, and cohabited with women. So, he's already working from a significant disadvantage, not to mention the fact that, you know, he's going up against God, which is kind of a fate accompli. <laughs> complete. But anyway, just from a human, from a, you know, naturalistic explanation here, he's already at a disadvantage. So, I believe he's He's trying to create more in his army by creating more Nephilim. That's just my my view. Uh, but before we leave this subject, one more thing. But going back to Genesis six, because I really do value your perspective on this. Is it is it equally possible that the Nephilim that were alive at the time of the flood that their spirits survived the flood by rising above the flood waters? Or
1: can I you? Mean- say- Yeah, because we don't have any information, whatever those beings were. And I've heard, you know, again, it's all theories, but uh, theories that perhaps they were just automata, you know, that the Nephilim were were essentially bodies, you know, functioning human bodies that could be easily possessed by a demon. And so then all of a sudden you have just uh, essentially a shell that they don't have to worry about. Um, It seems a little far-fetched and a little bit difficult, you know. But then the other opportunity, or the other idea, also has difficulty, which is if they indeed had an eternal soul and a spirit, how does that relate to? Are they are they just um, you know positionally determined against God, or do they have volition in any you know real sense? They have personhood, um, but again, on the, on the many trains of ifs we have to go to. If indeed they have an eternal soul of some kind, then there's no question that that could continue to interact in this world in a way that differs from our own. So the idea of yeah. kind of going up into a other dimensional kind of heaven, whatever it is, and then coming down and zapping in and out, if you want to say, or or maybe we could just say not sharing our precise limitations with the space-time continuum so they can you know move and interact with space and time differently.
0: Yeah, so let me clarify. So I definitely think we can say with certainty from our biblical soteriology that these Nephilim do not have redeemable souls. But mm-hmm. angels have eternal spirits. In other words, angels never cease to exist. They're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire as we talked about uh, mm-hmm. I think you mentioned earlier. So I'm not suggesting in any way that these Nephilim spirits were redeemable. They're not human. Uh, sure. you know, they're 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 definitely not human. They might have part human DNA but part human DNA is not DNA. So it's not human DNA. So they're not redeemable, but they are eternal, just like angels are eternal, in my view. Uh, and, you know, they can't cease to exist. So their bodies died in the flood, but the immaterial aspect of them, I think, survived by, by nature. The question is, where is it? Now, some would say at the flood, those Nephilim that existed at the time, their spirits went to... The holding tank, if you will, for the final judgment,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: and that the reason we have Nephilim after the flood is because is strictly because of another intrusion, another example post flood of a fallen angel cohabiting with women. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I'm kind of coming at it from the perspective that we don't know, obviously, for with certainty. But uh, to me, either option, and frankly, am I, I'm leaning toward both, uh, seems to not be contradicted in scripture. Uh, and seems plausible to me that you could have both the spirits of the dead nephilim from the flood as well as new nephilim um you know running around and then and then and then another whole subject which we can save for another day is what about the offspring of the nephilim so you've got fallen angels cohabiting with women creating nephilim now you've got a nephilim that has a physical body at least while it's alive and it it can cohabit with either another Nephilim or another human being. And so now you fast forward 4,000 years since the original intrusion, you've got quite a messed up race of people co-mingling with human beings, which they're messed up too because of the depravity of man. And, you know, do we just get worse and worse. Even though Darwin tried to suggest we get better and better, we don't. We get worse and worse. <laughs> Depravity is a degenerative disease, not a, a self-improving disease. So, you know, as we look around and the battle lines are being drawn and the, you know, the battle is heating up, you know, you're looking around, you don't know whether, as Paul said, or whoever wrote Hebrews said, you know, you could be entertaining a you know angel and not know it. Uh, we've got this examples in the Old Testament of good angels visiting Lot, mm-hmm. and and they were so lifelike and and looked like humans that the homosexuals there wanted to have them and take them. Uh, So, you know, you could look around as you're walking down the street, there could be a human being, an angel, a Nephilim, in my view, or a a shape-shifting, you know, fallen angel. I mean, who knows? You just don't know. So, uh, fascinating stuff, and we're definitely going to revisit this in a later podcast, but I want to shift gears now for the remainder of our time and have you explain— what I think is a one one of the things I love about your your mind, Brad, is that you really do come at things from a biblical perspective and let the Bible provide the framework for any theories and speculation and 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 and, and you know what well, it could be this. Well, the Bible is the regulating framework. And so the question that we've gotten recently, and this is what really ultimately just led me to to think about having you on, is when did Satan fall? So, we have the Ezekiel 28 passage, we have the, ref- the reference in Revelation to the one-third of the angels, we have Jesus' statement in, what is it, Luke 10, I think, uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning, uh, mm-hmm. wherever that is. So, you've got all these biblical data points, and from that, we're doing our best to extrapolate a timetable So, big picture, we know God is eternal. God eternally exists in three persons. He's the only one who's eternal. He created time, space, and matter. Um, And at some point in that creative process, he created uh, Lucifer, the cherub, right? Mm -hmm. And then at some point, that cherub fell. Uh, And so, give us some of your fascinating research on one possibility as when that might have happened. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I, I really do appreciate, uh, yeah, that you've been such a, a resource to bounce this off of because there's always something a little bit unnerving when you discover something or you see something or even have a theory about something that doesn't seem like it's been proposed. I've been a lot of great believers over a lot of time, spending a lot of uh, mental energy on understanding what the Lord has revealed. And so anytime there's something that seems novel, uh, it comes with some a bit of discomfort and surprise. but to 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 basically kind of frame the discussion, we don't know when Satan rebelled against God when he fell uh, with any absolute certainty. And so various theories have been put forth. One of them is the gap theory, and this is the idea, and it's put forth by, like you said, Arnold fruchtenbaum and theme uh, um, and others who uh, who have been, very ardent supporters of it. And this is the idea that between Genesis 1 1 and Genesis 1 2, there was an un told world. Uh, it could be millions or thousands or hundreds of years, it doesn't matter, but it was a world in which Satan was in charge, or who we now call Satan was in charge, and he led some kind of rebellion, and he lost and was judged, and some for some reason was allowed to continue and persist on the earth when God, and they will say, recreated or remade. And so they'll say that the creation week is actually a reformation of that. Um, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of great thinkers who hold to this viewpoint. It's major challenges in my uh, Perspective are one the fact that there is very limited, and I would argue, no good reason with the in the Hebrew text to imagine that there's a gap between Genesis one one and one two. It follows the the pattern of all Hebrew literature of having sort of a topic statement and then uh, explaining that topic statement. There's just it's it's a it's more than a bit of a stretch.
0: Yeah, and so, let me let me interject grammatically some of the top. Hebrew experts and minds in the world have pointed out that grammatically and syntactically, it just doesn't fit. Now, I understand the argument on the other side, they're going to get their gr- Hebrew grammarians right. to say, well, it's certainly possible that this could be what it is. But I think the way you said it really sums it up. Just it's it's a normal, natural way of reading the text that you have a summary statement followed by a, a, an exposition of of that statement. There's no gap of time between one, one, and one, two, but continue.
1: Yeah, well, and, and continue with that idea, right? It's it's actually a vov consecutive. So if you were to translate the the vov is the letter that oftentimes is used to mean and in the Hebrew text. And so if you were to translate all the ands, you might think your Bible has a lot of ands as it is, but if you were to translate all those, it would be unreadable. And this, and that, and then this, and then, and, 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 I mean, this Vav consecutive is a way of uh, stating that there's order and function and continuity in a text, and it's right there where they want to put this gap. So it, it, it has problems. But the next big problem is why allow Satan to persist? God continues to call his creation good. It's good, it's good, it's good. but the source of all evil is walking around free is is it is and it's still good. It's very like it seems again, it's not that they don't have uh, certain explanations for this, but it seems to put tension in the situation. And the greatest tension in the situation uh, is in that he allows, that is to say, God allows God the Father allows Satan access to Adam and Eve. Boy, isn't that problematic? He's got this creature that he knows is greater in wisdom and scope, beauty and power, and he allows the entirely naive Adam and Eve to be approached by this, you know, this 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 being, this embodiment of rebellion. It seems challenging, right? And I'll admit yeah. that my solution for this does not necessarily uh, alleviate all of the tension in this situation, but uh, I think there's a better way to look at it.
0: So yeah, and, and before you get to that, let me mention two other, I think, fatal flaws with the gap theory view. I've mentioned these recently at a prophecy night, but you know, just looking at the text, um, first of all, you got to wrestle with Romans 5:12, right? Uh, Romans 5:12 clearly indicates that death came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, and yet the gap theory proposes that you've got potentially millions of years of death and destruction. Prior to the reformation of creation, you know, and so that's that's a problem. You've got millions of years. It's the same problem that you know Darwinian, uh you know, creation, you know, uh, views have. Now, I'm not suggesting the gap theorists are Darwinian by any means. They're not, but but the, it's it's a it's a similar problem. How do you have? All of these, you know, because a lot of gap theorists—that's where well, they put the dinosaurs in that gap of time. Well, how did how do these dinosaurs die if death didn't come into existence until after sin? But then, to me, the bigger one or equally problematic is Mark ten sixteen, where Jesus says plainly, "From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female," and he's talking about Adam and Eve. So he seems to to indicate that the beginning of creation coincides with the beginning of Adam and Eve. So therefore, what do you do with these millions of years before that? So anyway, so now tell us, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but I want to just kind of drive home this point of why we we don't espouse the gap theory. And a lot of good people do, you know, uh, Schofield espoused it in the Schofield Reference Bible. Um, I think there's reasons for that. People I respect today. I mean, I love Artie Fruchtenbaum. I mean, I when I grow up, I want to be Arnold Fruchtenbaum. I mean, that's <laughs> right. how much I love him, but I just... You know, have an honest disagreement with him on on this view, but uh, but so back to the the question on the table, which is so when did this fall of Satan happen?
1: Right. So then, an alternate theory that people often work with is with the fall of Satan happened in heaven. It was outside of this creation, and somehow, right the 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 result of that was was casting that extra. That supernatural conflict that didn't happen in space time. And then God cast it down, cast Satan down into the earth. Well, that's problematic too, because here he's made this very good, very perfect earth. And the first thing he's going to do is throw this, you know, agent of evil and rebellion and chaos right into the middle of it. It just doesn't make sense. Like it's like you know after you uh, after you clean out the junk drawer in your house and get everything well organized, you throw two wild rats in there just to mess it all up. What what sense does that make? I mean, of course, God's plan is sovereign, uh, and we don't we don't we we trust it even if it doesn't make sense to us. But that's hard. Okay, so here's an alternate perspective that to me at least alleviates, if not eliminates, alleviates some of those tensions in terms of God allowing uh, this fallen angel so, uh, such access as we see in Genesis 3. And that is that. Uh, it is seems to me quite reasonable that God created uh, everything in the creation week, including the angelic world. And it would be very early on that He He created the angelic world, uh, because we know from Job that the, in the early days of creation there was angelic choirs singing. So they were certainly a part of that. Um, we know from Ezekiel and otherwise uh, that that there was some purpose right? And, and this is one of the big, another big problem with the, the gap theory is that it winds up having to put, a, a make up or invent a new Eden. So, in verse 13 of Ezekiel 28, it says, speaking, addressing, we believe, Satan, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. By the way, you can cross-reference those with the precious stones described in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, the world uh, workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were compared to uh for you on those day prepared for you on those days you were created. You were an anointed cherub who covers, I establish you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Uh, and it goes on to describe the perfection, the goodness of his creation. But it seems that Satan had some purpose, some working purpose in the Garden of Eden. In fact, in the uh in the pre-fall world. And um, Pride comes into his heart and he plans a rebellion, but he's got a problem, is that God had created these weird human beings, part physical and part spirit, that he had Uh, created in his image and declared them the rulers over it. So he needed to wrestle it, not from God, but from the uh, stewards who had been appointed as the the new rulers or stewards of this thing in God's stead. So what does he do? Well, he plans his first attack on mankind, right? Trying to separate them from – he knows he could overpower them, but he needs to separate them from God. Now, this gets us into a whole world of conjecture and guesses. It could be that he thought thought that he should have been the ruler of this and he wanted to prove to god that these other creatures that they had made that he had made in his own image adam and eve were inappropriate or unfit for the task so he could prove that by enticing them to rebellion Um, Or on the other hand, perhaps he just knew he had to remove them from the source so that he could ultimately take a might makes right stance and become the final authority in this world. And so uh, this actually gives us a lot more sense to, uh, to, to Satan's rebellion, because if Satan truly wanted to take over the entirety of reality and dethrone God, he has to recognize that he does not have the power to hold it all together. Right, he doesn't have the authority or the ability to do that. But if all he wanted was rule over this cosmos, then it makes more sense. He's not. Then he's just essentially ploying God and saying, "This should be mine. I'm. I'm more uh, appropriately the master." Of this. So what does he do? He steps into the situation, and this is his moment of rebellion, wherein he appears uh, to uh, Adam and Eve. I believe he did not appear to them as a snake as we see them today, but as some kind of uh, remarkable dragon figure, which becomes important and interesting throughout the the rest of the the biblical discussion. But he appears as this remarkable and beautiful kind of dragon-like figure and tempts Eve and Adam. And and, uh, of course, we know how that whole thing goes, but it's interesting that he can't overpower and destroy them. He needs to separate them from their right relationship, their designed relationship with God. In order to overcome them and become the God of this world, for such time as the Lord allows, so um, I think that that eliminates this this idea eliminates a lot of the problems because what was God doing or what was sorry what was Satan allowed to be doing or Halel is called but what was Satan allowed to be doing there? Well, he was designed to be there. He was supposed to be there. Why weren't Adam and Eve you know shocked? Well, because again, there were other angels that were uh, appearing and and potentially again other. Animals talking, right? And and then when you think about the ultimate reality, they were so new on the scene that they they certainly wouldn't have a huge, you know, database of what's normal and what's not normal. So, so anyway, it, to me, it, it, it's 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 um, maybe not too actually all that profound because it still brings about the same ultimate end. But that then sets the stage for continuing you know angelic rebellion as the other angels who had jobs on the earth right they had some sort of overseeing job on the earth seeing that satan's rebellion was not immediately punished that it was pronounced it was judged but but for all intents and purposes they'd say he got away with it and so why not join his side you get so much more out of the deal you know yeah mm. uh, and uh, from a certain perspective obviously a, a product uh, a spoiled perspective but still so, uh,
0: to summarize, you know, you've got creation early on in the, the week of creation. He creates these celestial beings, angels, and whatnot. Um, do you agree that this, if if this theory, if we just run with this theory for the sake of argument, that that encounter where Satan, as in the form of a dragon or serpent, uh, which that's what serpent means, by the way, in, in Hebrew. And then later on in Revelation, he refers to him as a dragon. Um did that, that occurred shortly after Adam and Eve were created because that's my take on it. I don't think that Adam and Eve walked around the garden for thousands of years or something, you know.
1: Some biological challenges to that viewpoint, right?
0: <laughs> right, because they would have had children, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was before sin, there was it was perfect. Uh, God told them to be fruitful and multiply. So that's why I think it had to happen very shortly, you know, before and otherwise you'd have a sin a sinless You know, if they were conceived before the fall of man, if these children had been conceived, then they would be sinless. So, yeah, I think it had to happen very quickly, probably days or weeks after Satan said, what in the world? It was, you know, God saw that every after he created Eve, everything is very, very good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Satan knew that. And uh, he said, what in the world's going on? Uh, wait just a minute here, buddy, and then he, he 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 conceives this plan. So, how do you correlate that with Jesus' statement to the disciples when the 70 are returning uh, in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning? Is he referring to this event?
1: Um, I don't think that's unreasonable, but also, uh, you know, as Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, exists outside of time, I, I think that he also Proleptically has seen the final fall and judgment of Satan. So the fact the the idea that he's referring to the Revelation 12 event where Satan is cast out of heaven permanently, because we know that he's not cast out of heaven now, the book of Job and other places obviously confirm this idea that he still has access. He doesn't have a home there, he doesn't have a place there. Um, but again, that's part of the problem. In fact, one of my favorite books is uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost because he poetically tries to deal with these ideas. So what does he do? Well, he has a sort of early version of the gap theory wherein Satan gets cast down to hell because that's he was bought in on that idea that Satan is the king of hell. And then as he's kind of rallying the troops, he has to go through this weird and arduous journey. And the angels in in uh, Eden are... are, are Keyed in, and they're like, "Hey, Adam, look out for this this bad guy that might be sneaking around." You know that there's all this wonderful drama, and it's a beautiful story, and it's a great poem. Lots of good, uh, fun poetic uh, things that come out of it. But what we see in in reality uh, is what we see in the reality of scripture is that. Obviously, Satan didn't have to go in through to any strange permutations to gain access to Adam and Eve. I mean, he obsessed, he possessed this serpent, possessed this, this dragon. Uh, but that seems to be potentially more so for the, the nature of the approach of his tactic, of his strategy, than some sort of like, oh, he slipped past the omniscient God's, you know, <laughs> guards to get access to this basically naive Adam and Eve. So,
0: yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I agree. Uh I, I do I do still think the Luke 10 passages, Jesus, you know, referring to that moment uh when Satan rebelled whenever it was, whether this theory that you're uh kind of outlining here or something outside of time space, uh and matter because that, that's kind of that's the traditional view. That probably was your view all along. Is that that somehow after creation, very quickly, Satan coveted in his heart to take over the throne of God. Ezekiel twenty-eight says he desired to be in the uh, you know upper heavens there. Uh, so he staged a coup, and I've used that phrase. And then uh, God uh, rebuffed the coup, and then Satan set his sights on Earth. Now that could have all kind of happened at once, right? We we. Right. We don't know that it was a step one, and then sh- Satan wandered around earth bitter and you know, grumbling. And oh, how dare God! I know what I'm gonna do. I think I'll run over and you know, like it was a plan B. Right. Uh, I think it was probably all part of the same thing. Satan wanted to defeat God, and so he did so in the concept of uh, attacking his uh, you know, human beings, the sure. highest pinnacle of creation. But um, but anyway, so that's the Luke 10 correlation. I, I think Jesus is i mean it could be proleptically referring to the ultimate judgment you know again it's 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 not it's hard to say but what about revelation 12 because in revelation 12 which you've referenced a couple of times the first part is clearly historical looking back in history to both the birth of Messiah, and I take it the, the fall of Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he shifts into the tribulation era where he banishes Satan from heaven permanently. He no longer has access to come knock on God's door. That's in Genesis, uh, Revelation 12. Mm-hmm. But when when we read in verse 4 during the historical portion, it talks about a third of the stars. Of course, stars is another term for angel. Uh and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. So that's really the only place in Scripture that we get this reference to the alleged one third of the angels falling with Satan. Now, mm-hmm. I think that coupled with Jesus' statement in Luke ten, you know, gives it weight. Uh, but what's your take on the the third of the stars there?
1: No, I I, I tend to agree that that is. Uh, Speaking of that event, now, I don't know, uh, again, given that this is uh, sort of symbolically revealed here, right, it doesn't trouble me at all to think that that wasn't a description of something that happened in a day, you know, but uh, but was… again several <laughs> several if not hundreds of years if not you know thousands of years of yeah probably more like hundreds though uh, of that process between satan launching an attack on humanity via the, the- genesis 3 account and then tempting others down or fall you know that it's roughly a third that choose to rebel and follow him and and not necessarily all of which engage in the uh sexual activity with humans right they don't all rebel in that same way to that same degree but uh i, I tend I, i've read other explanations and i think um someone who i really don't interact with very very much but uh heiser seems to uh, and others seem to suggest that this is not having to do with that. And it, like you said, it seems like a pretty strong connection.
0: Yeah and Heiser of course there were several issues with him I knew him uh well uh he of course just died recently and I you know I I value a lot of his fictional work cuz it really opened a lot of people's eyes to this supernatural realm which tends to be sort of you know stiff armed by a lot of evangelical Christians but he had some soteriological issues some eschatological issues he was kind of off the reservation uh, doctrinally in, in a lot oh, of ways you know, I
1: know. Yeah, I mean, just just because I, I do get criticism for this, I do interact with his work on the Book of Enoch. He he did quite a lot of that, and some of it is reasonable. Although I would say that he regards Enoch far too highly, mm-hmm. and uh, that's someone who respects the Book of Enoch and and has a lot to say. But he gained a a, a weird view on that, and he had an incredible disrespect for Scripture, uh, claiming that Scripture puts produces an ideal ideology of a flat Earth, and and that uh, you know the, he. Believed in evolution, right? He had, he had a, a very low view of scripture in in the bookends that I think was really damaging to his perspective. So his idea that's that that, uh, that sort of accommodationist idea that well, yeah, that's what the you know those primitive Hebrews that's all they could understand, and so that's what God revealed. But we know that that's not accurate that the right. cosmology offered by Genesis chapter 1 is absolutely trustworthy and is absolutely authoritative and we don't look at any passage of scripture and say oh well yeah but that was just some of those moronic primitive people and god was you know compromising in some sense so yeah Heiser I find to be um deeply problematic and his contribution especially to these more important issues of the spiritual reality of everything winds up being such a double-edged sword because the flat earthers just jumped all over him right because he essentially said no the bible teaches a flat earth when it doesn't
0: right no it absolutely does and i know i'm going to get some emails because i get some emails from po- people who uh, espouse the flat earth th- theory already and and i you know to me, it's such a non-starter that I I don't really even mention it. But when I do, then of course I get I wouldn't say flooded, but there's definitely a good number of people that will let me know they're not happy. But I'm sorry. I mean, the you know uh, just talk to Mondo Gonzalez, who has an observatory and multiple telescopes, and I mean you you know this is not not that hard, honestly. Um, yeah. But. Uh,
1: I had a friend yeah. from that same perspective, and and uh, it was fun because I go teach, I get to go teach the Bible in the Philippines and various places. And so I called him from the Philippines, uh, you know, and it was later. I said, I called him on the little FaceTime thing. I said, Look, it's dark. And I said, Go outside. Is it dark? He said, No, it's light. I said, Well, I'm not saying that this closes the issue by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, but your cosmology doesn't really allow. No, for this. <laughs> it
0: doesn't. It really no, doesn't. Funny. Yeah. No. It's uh. It's interesting. I mean, I've said many times uh, in casual conversations. I don't know if I've said it on air very often, but to me, it, it. I'm not troubled at all by the theoretical notion that such a vast conspiracy could be perpetrated on mankind. If you not. understand the conspiracy the way I do. That's easy to get past that. That's not my objection. My no. objection is just science and the scientific facts of the matter and, and the biblical record and so forth. So, um, right. <laughs> so, so, but to summarize, you would say that Satan falling like lightning is probably a reference there to the his fall, you know, his original fall, right?
1: Yeah and I and I again I don't think there's any real cha- significant challenge to that being after the Genesis 3 event. So the Genesis 3 event that's the moment of rebellion. We have actually it's interesting because if this if this theory is uh, genuine Genesis 3:15 is the initial sentencing of Satan which does not make sense if Satan had already fallen and been sentenced. So yeah. now all of a sudden we see his sentencing, unless there was some sort of like – it hadn't been pronounced until that point, which uh, seems unlikely. But what we have then is that Genesis 3.15 becomes the preeminently meaningful statement of uh, the future history or the future of Satan and his expectation of a, a coming uh, judgment that would be in some way final for him, right? Yeah, so,
0: I mean, I think absolutely. I mean, that that's a great point is where – we 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 don't have a biblical record of god's reaction to satan's original rebellion according to the traditional view in heaven right well, i mean did that just go unaddressed or what right so to me at the very least i think what we can say is it seems like there is a much closer correlation between the isaiah 28 passage the genesis 12 passage the luke 10 passage the genesis three passage, much closer correlation in time, at the very least, to these events than what we have traditionally thought in terms of compartmentalizing. Because you're right, you know, I think we can dismiss, and I don't mean to sound dismissive, even though I just use the term, because again, I I understand there's good people that hold the gap theory. I just strongly disagree. We've given several biblical reasons why it just doesn't hold water. By the way, you, you, you kind of glossed over it pretty quickly, but one of the big arguments that they're forced to make is that there were two Edens. Because, you know, Ezekiel 28, they say there's two Edens, and I actually, uh, and maybe we can talk more about this offline, but, you know, they, they try to make the exact opposite argument of what you made, and that is that the descriptions are so disparate, it must be two different places, but... I don't see any contradiction in the descriptions between Ezekiel 28 and a Genesis, you know, count. But anyway.
1: um, And by the way, just the deceptiveness that you would have to accuse God of in that regard. He's not going to even say a different Eden. Having only mentioned Eden, you know, there in scriptures substantially, having no other, and he's just going to casually drop the word Eden with no explanation other than, again, the allegations that somehow that description of Eden doesn't fit in with the original one, which has very little description. Yeah, it's It's a new uh, Eden. Yeah, it's, it's a
0: new and improved eden or something without
1: yeah. the word new it yeah, was available right. he could yeah. have said so and so for god to be this kind yeah. of a, this to, to speak with this kind of uh unclarity it's, it's on the borderline of, of of accusing god of being deceptive
0: yeah and we don't i don't mean to my, my, our laugh is not intended to be uh You know, uh, harsh or ungracious, because again, I I understand good people. Some of the heroes of the faith that I studied, uh, you know, in the turn of going back to the turn of the 20th century. I mean, I didn't study them while they were alive, just to clarify. But I mean, that's (laughs) when they lived, and then I've studied them. You know, they a lot of them held to the gap theory, uh, but so we respect. We respect the people, we just strongly disagree with their view. But, you know, going back to the what you just said about the disingenuineness of not clarifying we're talking about a different Eden, you know, dispensationalists kind of had the same problem when it comes to the new covenant. You know, we, we what, sometimes what we do is when we can't get the text to fit our preconceived paradigm— we say, oh, well, it must be talking about something different there. Uh, and that's what dispensationalists did with the New Covenant when for a while there, a lot of the classic dispensationalists held to that there must be two New Covenants because the New Covenant is only for Israel. And when the New Testament talks about the New Covenant, it must be talking about something different. But again, same problem. It's so such a well-known term in Jewish uh, thought and the in the Hebrew Scriptures that to use that term if you mean something different and not clarify that would be quite troublesome. So, um, but so we just, disc- we just regarded the gap theory, the traditional theory that this fall of Satan happened sometime outside of time, space and matter. And then subsequent to that, he then had a secondary, uh, you know, Moment where Satan said, "Okay, well, if I can't have heaven, and by the way, I've I've espoused this view, I've talked about it, and in a lot of times, just in speaking because it flows so naturally from what I've said for thirty years, I'll uh, you know I'll say it that way." That he then set his sights on the earth. Well, I think what we're saying is, as you take a closer look at the biblical record, it doesn't have to be a compartmentalized approach where step one was this hard stop step two they could have all sort of happened after the initial creation very soon after the creation of adam and eve on the sixth day and all been sort of incorporated into this uh establishment of this cosmic battle between lucifer and god that persists to this day and will continue until the end of the millennium when when he's cast into the lake of fire is that a fair summary
1: no i think it's excellent Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And that's- well, you know, this has just been fascinating for me. I feel like I'm just having a private conversation, and I forget that we're recording it as a podcast. And uh, <laughs> But hopefully it'll be beneficial to uh, the body of Christ at large. But we want to uh, say thanks again to Brad for his time. Uh, would you be willing to come on again sometime? And uh, It would
1: be a delight, uh, an absolute joy. It always is to great to talk to you. But, JB, do you mind if I say just one more quick thing before we end? Absolutely. Um, anytime we start talking about the satanic world, demons, demonic possession, uh, and ultimately the, uh, the Luciferian conspiracy and his plans on this world, it can be easy to become quite frightened, and uh, you should be. It is a terrifying, great big world out there, and the only hope that you have is to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, to be born again, to be safe and sealed by his work on the cross. And it is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can no longer be possessed, you can no, you can be manipulated, you can be deceived, but you cannot be uh, possessed. Nothing can interfere with that eternal destiny and that safety that's found by the work of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, uh, if I had one... Thing, one uh, one exhortation for our listeners who maybe made it this far: trusting Jesus Christ is the only hope that you have in this world and in all of the, the the terrors and horror of what's ahead.
0: Amen. And thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, You know, we have a real kindred spirit there. You are passionate as we are about the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. That's kind of how we got connected uh, in the first place many years ago was with with our uh, shared understanding that salvation is a free gift. That God's grace is free. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. And so, mm-hmm. I, I was just about to uh, to say uh, the same thing, and, and urging and imploring those who might be listening to this podcast, because you know sometimes the nature of the topic like this. It resonates, and people will forward it to other people. Hey, you got to listen to this. This is, you know, fascinating. This is whatever. And it it often, you know, we find that unbelievers will listen to this, and we want to, as mm-hmm. Brad just said, implore you to place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your mm-hmm. personal salvation. So... Uh, well, thank you, Brad. Uh, I want to remind folks, uh, tomorrow we'll have uh, Shane on, uh, my technology expert. Uh, you can look forward to that. We'll be posting that midday sometime. Uh, love to hear what he has to say about uh, the latest developments in AI and technology and so forth. And I promise to have Brad back on again some sometime. Uh, Brad, you're just such a, a, a wealth of, of information and obviously... <clears throat> obviously rooted in Scripture, but also just such a a great heart. So thanks so much for sharing your time today. Uh, God bless you, everyone, and uh, we will talk again soon. Have a great rest of the week.